You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Today's guest is the brilliant Kevin Reese, who after 14 years of being incarcerated, is now addressing the injustices that permeate the criminal legal system today. Kevin is the executive director of Until We Are All Free. Shonda connected with Kevin to talk about his dedication to restorative justice, reimagining the prison system, and the importance of healing from unchecked and generational trauma. When I was 18 years old, I was involved in a robbery, and during this robbery, someone lost their life. So I went to prison for second-degree felony murder. I got 22 years, I spent 14 and a half years inside of Minnesota Correctional Facilities for what took place on that December afternoon in 2004. I was sitting in solitary confinement and and it was starting to like click that I had stuff to say. I had places I wanted to go. I actually wanted to be in college. I was sitting there thinking, what the, where do you want to be, man? I wanted to have a chance to go to college. Um, I wanted to write poetry. I wanted to be an artist. But, you know, before I was afraid to say I'm these things, to say I actually want to be a student, y'all. Actually, I write poems, fam. Like, I'm from North Minneapolis, right? It's hard for me to go on the block and tell my homies, hey, y'all want to hear this poem, right? Um, So it hit me uh, when I realized the only pathway to my future was going to be for me to fully step into who I am. It's why I'm here. It was part of back to my self-discovery. The only way I was able to pay it forward was to say, I must embody restorative justice. I must embody something was taken from community because of my actions. And the only way that I can even give a shot at trying to pay it forward is to dedicate my life to humanity, to other humans, and understanding that I am a one that's a part of a collective. So it's at the root of all things that I do. You know, in our school system, and, and I'm reflecting on my mom, too, who I lost in the last, you know, year and a half or so. And my mom would say to me, like, you know, I would have these moments where I would feel like I was extra smart. And she'd be like, you're not extra smart. There's extra smart people everywhere. They just don't have what you have. There's brilliant people in prison that weren't nurtured in school. Right? Like, don't don't think the circumstances make someone not smart. And so I think a lot about our schools and, and particularly our young men, right? And so if you had sort of this whisper in your head and you wanted to do poetry and you were sort of in one part of your brain discovering or thinking that you wanted to discover part of that leadership, do you think it was effectively nurtured in school? And if not, what do you think might have assisted you? Yeah, for sure. It wasn't effectively nurtured in school. Um, And I think one of the things that would have assisted me if it would have made sense into my real life. So when you're poor and you're a poor child and you come from generational trauma and generational poverty, when you go to school, you're going to a place where they don't speak the same language that the people in your house speak. Right. So I was in school and they were speaking a language that I couldn't translate towards my future. I couldn't understand how this thing, this information that they're telling me to memorize was going to help me get out of poverty. So there was no space for what I was learning 
for me to feel like I could take these this information and transfer it into my real life and make it make sense for Kevin. So if it would have been more of a holistic approach to my education versus remember this information, two plus two is what four, okay, now you're smart. I didn't necessarily receive education like that. It didn't make me feel smart if I could just remember what you're telling me to say. Um, if it would have been a more holistic approach and saying, hey, Kevin, what do you like? Hey, Kevin, what are you good at? Hey, Kevin, what is the thing that you would come here to do every day that gives you joy or that's fun? You know, school is the strict. You have this class, this class, this class. The teacher is going to teach this, going to teach that, going to teach that. And none of those things was translating to my real life. So I felt detached from it. Mm -hmm. And then as you were on this road of sort of discovery and transformation, perhaps in your life, um, did you, it seems like that was being in jail, being in prison, perhaps was a place where you were able to live more fully into that? Like, were you encountering people that were nurturing that in prison or what, what happened there? No, actually, yes, it was. Um, you know, I, I went to prison when I was 18 years old. So, you know, I studied, showed a human brain going to fully develop, you know, 25, 26 years old. So around that time, when I was 25, 26 years old, I looked up and I was in this place and this place was called prison. So now my brain was a sponge. Now I was looking for all pro-humanity. My body felt like it needed to be nurtured. I felt the way it was a bunch of known unknowns and I didn't know what to do with what I felt. Only thing that I could do first was watch and observe. There were some of the best human beings I've ever met in my life is unfortunately incarcerated inside prisons and jails across this country, particularly here in Minnesota, some that I know and I love. So in prison was the first place that people spoke to me and said, hey, Kev, actually, you're a writer, bro. Hey, Kev, actually, you know what? How you are, you always kind of been like that. Where it was space for me to be chill, where it, was, it wasn't that I was soft, it wasn't that I was this. The people that I knew that I grew up with, everybody would tell me, it was others that would say to me, Kev, that's how you always been. And I would say, oh, actually it is. And it was space for me to be that way. And it was being accepted as, as we were getting older. It was being accepted from my peers and from mentors and folks saying, no, just the way that you are is grand and beautiful. So it gave me permission to continue to be myself and say, oh, myself is valued. Oh, I got more of myself. If y'all like self, oh, I got some more of y'all for you. I got some stuff that I've been burying. I ain't have a place to put it. So in prison was the first place that I had a place to practice stepping into my own and being myself. And it was, I learned a lot from the people that was around me. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. I think we briefly talked about this and I watch a lot of TV. It's quite amazing <laughs> that I fit it in. One of the shows that I really like that's been on television is uh, For Life. It's about a guy who's in prison for life who passed the bar exam. And so now he's an attorney, but he was in prison and he was providing counsel to folks. And I think that show for me sort of illustrated all the different communities that exist and how they show up for each other inside. So, you know, understanding that people have done some pretty bad things to get there. But once you're in there and understanding that bad things still happen in there, right? So I don't want to gloss over any of those things. But within those institutions, there's still a community of people that are nurturing each other and supporting each other. Can you just shed a little bit of light on that? Because my version is a TV version, <laughs> right? No, absolutely. I learned so much about manhood 
being inside of prison, it's nothing like seeing someone in prison with life, right? When, when I'm a 21, 20 year old kid, here's this other black man, he has life. And I used to see that he'll be on the phone all the time. And I used to think like, he's been here like 20, 30 years, who the heck is he talking to, right? And then to go in the visiting room and see family members coming to visit folks who have life and they've already been here 20 something years and to see their family coming up there to still see them and nurture them in that way. It shed a light on humanity, on, on this part of humanity that I was never exposed to because it was like everything says that this human being is disposable. But there's so many people around that's still loving this human being. What is this human being doing, right? So I had to like talk to some of the men and say, hey, how, how do you got life and you still got your family and your friends and you're still walking around with hope? You're encouraging me. Where is this coming from? And it wasn't just one person. It was a culture of that. It was so many men who had took the same role that I've taken now were completely taking accountability for the actions that took that led them there. And then right after that, getting back up off the ground and saying, okay, this is my station in life, but that don't mean that I can't actually impact the world from right where I'm at. And that can start by, hey, being nice to the 19-year-old kid that just walked through the door who clearly don't know what's going on. It means making sure no one starved inside of prison. No one starves. We would literally feed each other, white person, black person. It don't matter when I was in prison and if you was hungry and I had food, I'm going to give you food. If you didn't have soap to wash up with, someone would give you soap. If you didn't have deodorant, someone would give you deodorant. It was just the culture there, the culture of taking care of each other. Someone would give a stranger something. And this went across color lines. It went across all of that. And it was just like culture. This is the right thing to do. Someone comes in, they don't have nothing. You got something, you make sure that they okay. Before I went to prison, I was thinking it was going to be the complete opposite of that. But when I was learning the ropes and how to swim inside of prison, that was the ropes. The ropes was one of mutual respect, one of community, one that each one of us must do what we can to try to take care of each other. And my actions impact what's happening with you and what's happening with you now. This is what's not taking place across the board now. Of course, we got the dark corners of all places that exist. But for the most part, the culture inside of prison was of that. And I was astonished by, by being there and saying, oh, as I was stepping into my own, these were the things that was required of me right, to be a steward and to also be a part of the greater good. We were all in a part of a chain. And I also seen fathers in prison sending money to their families. It was where, like, people, we were in prison. It was the culture inside of Stillwater. Like, when folks' children's birthday would come by, people would save up their 25 cent an hour paychecks, right, for a period of time. I know my child's birthday in three months, so for the next three months, I'm going to save every 25 cent and I'm going to send it to my child for their birthday. I actually do this every year. I've seen so many people, and I'm like, oh, what? And so it set the tone that, oh, while I'm in prison, I too got a son. I had a son. Like, oh, it set the tone saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm incarcerated, but that doesn't mean that I still can't contribute to my family, contribute to raising my son. The culture inside of prison was, you better call your family. You better call your son. People were asking, when the last time you talked to your son is where I got it from, where I spent... 14 and a half years in prison and probably 95% of those days, I talked to my son. I talked to him every day while I was in prison. And I got that from watching others. It was the culture inside of it. So you brought up the 25 cent pay. What is the financial system inside of prison, right? Because I hear a lot about the fines and the fees and 
the phone calls and there's video visits maybe or not video visits like do you have a do you have a handle on what that is yeah for sure um the financials is when you're poor right you're going to make 25 cent an hour at some jobs up to 50 cent and if you if you don't owe any fines or fees the state will take 10 percent of every dollar that is sent to you if your family send you a hundred dollars the take the state will take not I mean ten when you get the money it's only ninety dollars and if you owe fines and fees or restitution they're going to take twenty percent of every dollar that your family sent to you and another five percent surcharge on the back end right everything costs right soap costs toothpaste costs deodorant costs lotion costs all the things that you need of course the chow hall is no five star restaurant at all so. You want to, we're like creatures of comfort. So of course you're going to, you want some things that help you make you feel comfortable. So you need to buy food and the price of the food and the wages that you make does not coincide. It's saying that you're going to need family members to send you money in order for you to be able to live comfortably inside of here. You can't live comfortably inside of there from the wages that you make in prison. And then also a lot of the programs that's inside of there is very exploitative. You are contracting with large corporations the state is contracting with large corporations for your labor. You will see on your paycheck where the state is getting paid $9 an hour or so for your labor, and you are making 50 cents. And they will put it on your, on your pay stub. You will see that your check was really like 400 something dollars, right? You got 80 and the rest went to the state. And this you've been in a warehouse slaving overnight for the last two weeks, right? And this was considered a good job inside of prison. And this was a good job. The, the economic system inside of prison is one of exploitation. Um, I feel that prison is like kidnapping and ransom. It's the way it feels. It feels like they take your body, not at your will. No one, you know, signs up. They take your body against your will. And then they tell you, if you want to talk to your family, you got to pay. If you want to eat, you got to pay. So they're holding your body for ransom. And that's the way it feels inside of it. And for the people that say, well, there's things that you could do to avoid being in there. Do you think that that's a legitimate response? It has context. Both things can be true, right? Where, yes, that's absolutely true. But the response to the system can also be wrong. What I did to do, what someone did to get in prison can be wrong, very much. And then the system's response to that wrong also is wrong. So I would tell those people that, but saying, yes, that could very well be true. But do we want to live in a world where we have an actual restorative model and someone did something wrong and then we're going to send them to abusers who is going to abuse and exploit them? And guess what? 90%, over 90% of these people will be coming back into our community. So yes, both things are true. The individual have to take accountability for their actions and what landed them there. And then the system who claims to want the greater good and the benefit of the community and public safety they also have to be held accountable for the way that they treat human beings and the conditions that they're having them live in and transition back out into. For the phone calls and for you staying in touch that 95% of the time with your son, does that also cost? Yeah, every penny. Um, the, the, over the years, the price fluctuated. Um, and, and some of the prisons, the state of Minnesota actually has some of the lower phone rates, though, across the country. In some of the prisons, you would pay up to 81 cent for a 15-minute phone call. At one point, it was 37 cent, 
And we did a bunch of organizing around the prison phone cap. And then the federal FCC changed it. And actually, it lowered in other states, but in Minnesota, it actually rose, right? So we were actually in that actively organizing. And we was like, hey, when? They're going to put a cap on the phone prices. And then when they did the numbers, do, 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 do. And it came back from Minnesota. Actually, bad news for you guys. Y'all phone calls are going up. But yes, a phone call costs. You can't make a free phone call unless you call collect and it's going to, your family going to have to pay for that too. So you were an organizer inside of prison. Yes. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> I'm here. Um, it was out of necessity. It was, it was a day where it was like, not only am I here, but so many of my friends that I went to school with, we are here. And we're sitting here joking about some of our childhood memories, how we played Sega Genesis at each other's houses. And remember that day at school, remember that one time at the park. And one day it just gave, I was just overwhelmed with grief and sadness. We were all in our mid twenties. A lot of us still had years and years to go. I was just overwhelmed with grief and sadness. And it was like, we need to create a place and a space to discuss what got us here, what's keeping us here. And what is it that we need to do to go home and not only go home, but to be assets and pillars back in our community. Um, so in the spirit of that, I created a space inside prison where we can just come and we can build with each other because we all felt like we had a future, though. We were all talking about this future that we were looking forward to, but we didn't know the pathway to get there. Right. How are we going to get to this future of like peace and prosperity when all of these barriers is going to be in front of us? So. While in prison, I organized and I did this work. A lot of the times it was contrary to the actual rules of prison because prison says you can't gather with more than six people at one time, right? And I, it came to a real revolutionary moment when I had to say, listen, y'all, I've been held accountable for doing wrong in my life and they, they didn't have enough handcuffs or mace or correctional officers to make me stop gathering with my brothers once a week and have these conversations about what got us here, what's keeping us here, and what we needed to do to get out and to be able to bloom into our full selves. So it worked out really well for a lot of us because it was like this place where so many of us was fed. We used to tell each other we love each other. At the end of every group, we would go around and look each other in the eye and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it was so many brothers that would come to the group and say, man, ain't nobody never told me that they loved me before. And this was astonishing to me. Because I'm like, I feel like I grew up in poverty. I came from nothing. But I'm like, we, we had love. My grandma used to tell me she loved me. My sister and them used to tell me that she loved me. You have so many men like, no, I've never seen love expressed like this in this way. Um, so it benefited us a, a tremendous amount. But also the system cracked down. There were time I spent my days in solitary confinement inside of prison for organizing. They were saying that I was enterprising. And inside of prison, it's against their policies. So the, the brother seeing me walked away in handcuffs on many a day for doing this thing that we were doing. I don't even know what to ask yet, because that's that's just is troublesome. The things that I have heard that you can go to solitary for in prison have been surprising to me. I don't know if they're all true, right? Because I'm I'm TV watcher. I mean, I read a lot and I was reading, I can't even remember the name of the book, but there was a journalist that pretended to be, um, he he went and worked in a prison and chronicled, 
chronicled it and did a book, right? So he was talking about like, if certain books are read, if they're snuck in, you can go to solitary. Or if you're organizing in a certain way, or if you're talking about certain things, is this a true reflection here in oh, Minnesota? Absolutely. Inside of Minnesota, there's an actual list of books that you can't receive. And none of these books is titled Kill Everybody, Blow Up the Prison, right? There are actually like revolutionary books or just like some books of poetry that they get to make this blacklist of books that's not accepted into the facility. And also the books that's accepted into the facility is at the discretion of the actual officer that opens up the box, right? I've had books denied because the officer personal opinion was that this posed a security threat to the institution, right? Particularly when we're talking about any Afrocentric books. I've had so many Afrocentric books. They used to deny Dr. Naeem Akbar books to me, right? And say that this is a security threat to the prison. So yes, it's actually true that they monitor the information that you can have inside a prison. And if you're caught with certain books, you will go to solitary confinement. It's a yes. I remember reading that book and several of the books that were mentioned were there on my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've seen it was a tragedy because it was books that I've had and I would order them over because I used to give my books away and it was certain books that I would have for my collection because you ain't read a book until you read it twice. So that's how I feel, right? And it would be books that I already got and it would be another officer telling me, oh, this time we can't get it. It's a security threat. So picture how that felt when I felt like it was a personal oppression of me when I knew that this was one individual's discretion over this information that I'm saying that I want to read for my own self-development. It's a real thing. Yeah. And how does education work um, in our prison system here? So you went in at 18. Were you able to take college courses? Is that available to everyone or how, what is that system? No, it's not available to everyone. It's, it's, it's now we're, it has changed. I was in prison over a decade ago. We're, we're back to progress. We're making progress. So things are shifting. But in the mid-early 2000s, when I first got to prison, no, the way that the college courses were set up, you had to have under 10 years, under five years. You couldn't be in prison for a violent crime. So there was a bunch of criteria and barriers that excluded a lot of folks from being able to actually take the college courses, right? Uh, while I was in, I, got my, I didn't get a GD. I got my high school diploma while I was in prison. They got trade courses where you can learn carpentry, where you can learn flooring and drywalling and things like that. Um, one of the things that the man, we would hear back from other people that was released after doing those programs, which was beginning to take the umph out of the programs was, man, I did that in there and I thought I got a certificate, but the certificate that they gave me when I got out here to the workforce, they told me that it wasn't valid. It wasn't accredited. So folks was actually taking programming inside of prison, getting these things that they thought was trades and skills. And when they would come out into the job market, the, the employer would tell them, never heard of this don't know what this is, can't credit you for it. So inside, it would be, what's the purpose of taking these courses or taking these classes if when I go home, this information doesn't translate to my real life? You would have people that would still do it because they would learn how to do the thing, but they will not get the actual credit from doing it. They'll come out into the world and then they'll have to do it all over again and prove themselves. So um, education exists inside of there, but it does not have no roots to community and there's, it's not a pathway from this education to actual sustainable living. That's a, it's a huge gulf between learn this thing, 
and this thing was actually helped with your rehabilitation. They're not connected. And that, and that is improving, but it's still disconnected? Yeah, it's improved, right? Right now we have, you know, multiple college courses that's inside of prison. I'm a part of the Legal Revolution, which is a project with until we are all free, all square and Mitchell Hamlin Law Clinic, where we're actually trying to create space to breed more folks like the man from Fort Life, who we've given space for some of our incarcerated scholars to be able to get their JDs and their law degrees. So this is a very revolutionary time where we are trying to push the envelope as far as we can. Um, but some of these folks, of course, there's barriers to, to them actually getting this education. Some of the folks that we're working with actually have life. None of the programs inside of prison is still accredited. They're still not accredited, but there's just more community organizing and movement building where there's more space in community for folks with directly impacted knowledge to be able to contribute to the greater good. So let's talk about what you just laid out very quickly and like <laughs> swept over. That seems like a pretty powerful thing to be doing here. So you're doing what to get JDs for who? Until we are all free, this project is led by our partners, All Square uh, Minneapolis, which is another organization, you know, founded and ran with directly impacted folks in mind, Mitchell Hamlin Law Clinic. We are, we are a part of a project that we call the Legal Revolution. And the Legal Revolution is this partnership between the DOC, Mitchell Hamlin, until we are free and all square. But we have two incarcerated scholars right now who's currently in law school. And we are supporting them through law school. And we want to hand over the keys to the law back to the folks who's been directly impacted by it. There are so many people in prison that's here for this thing that's called the law, right? But we don't understand the language of the law, right? The language of the law is something that was like told to us. It wasn't provided for us. When you learn the law, most of us, we're sitting in the interrogation room. We're sitting in the courtroom and they're telling us how this language is going to be ruled over our body. So our goal is to give the keys of the law back to those who's been impacted by the law the most, right? But we will have folks to be able to have to not continue to do post-conviction. I've seen people inside of prison having to get post-conviction lawyers, right? And get post-conviction lawyers and their families is going to scrounge up all of this money, take out a second mortgage on their house, do all of this stuff, get a lawyer, still doesn't change the, the it still doesn't affect the their loved one incarceration, right? When we know some of the best legal minds in the country is actually incarcerated people. And we want to give power to those legal minds. It's too much brilliance is too much light that we have locked inside the cages. So this partnership is our way of trying to open up the doors and allow that knowledge and information that they've had to get because it's their freedom that they're fighting for. They had to learn the law because it was their only pathway to freedom. And we want to unleash a whole generation of them to dismantle the criminal justice system. And that's what we're building. Yeah. How was this idea um, born? Like, where did it come from? It's the brainchild of Emily Hunt Turner from All Square. She's a lawyer. You know, they have a All Square law farm that they're building right now. Um, she had this grand idea. How great would it be to allow people to become lawyers while they currently incarcerated? And until we all free looped in, because one of the things that's a part of our program and is something that we call internal investment. Now, internal investment is this 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 way in which community can help with rehabilitation. My story is while I was in prison, I was working with Voices for Racial Justice, which is a local nonprofit here in Minneapolis. While in prison, I heard our former executive director, Vina Kay, on the radio, 
talking about the organization, talking about what they do. I wrote her a letter. I told her who I was, told her that I was organizing with this group of men in prison. And there was a bunch of known unknowns and we wanted to be connected to community in any way possible. And she responded and I spent my last six and a half years being a prison justice organizer with Voices for Racial Justice. A few, a full staff member. My, my last six and a half years in prison meant I spent 80% of my, phone, my time on the phone, building a community, being a part of the VRJ staff. They invested in me, they sent me books. I was able to be even compensated for my time, my expertise. It gave the group that we were having in prison legs because the group was actually connected to a community organization. And I know what that did for me, right? If someone would say, Kevin, what was the pivotal point in your rehabilitation? It was community speaking to me while I was in prison when I still had six, seven, eight years left said, hey, Kevin, actually you're valuable and actually your contribution to community is needed. Keep reading, keep building. There's a place for you in community. I know what that did for me. So until we are all free, our internal investment program is that reaching into our folks who's currently incarcerated and begin to support them while they are in prison. So when they come home, they will have relationships and community. They will have resources. And I'm just one. This was just my idea of coming home and being a community organizer. There's so much brilliance inside of prison that we need to tap into. And we can't wait till they come home to do it. We must do it while they're currently incarcerated. So until we are all free, that's the role that we play with the legal revolution. We give internal investment to our legal scholars, which means we're sending them all of the information that they need, making sure that they're able to join us for all of our uh, meetings, connecting them to other community members, making sure that they're having one-on-ones. When they come home, we have a welcome home kit for them and a whole entire um, a program set up for them. But our goal is to begin investing in our folks while they're currently incarcerated. We don't wanna to wait till they get home to say, oh, now you're valuable. They are valuable now. So Kevin, tell me about Until We Are All Free. You, you've been referring to it, it's, it's quite exciting work, but tell me, tell me what that is and how that came about. So Until We Are All Free is the prayer that I left at the door when I left prison July 11th, 2019. Um, the first place I read this was in Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Um, she ended her book with, you know, the letter from James Baldwin to his nephew out of the, the fire next time. And he ends the book with that, you know, none of us can be free until we are all free. Drop the book. I remember dropping the book and having chills. This is in like 2012, dropping the book and having chills. And it was something that stayed with me, it was imprinted in me. And I knew that Kevin will be all right. For some strange reason, I knew I'm like, I'm going to be all right. I'll be all right. But I can't be all right alone. So until we are all free was my approach to all of the collective organizing that I was doing inside of prison. So when I came home in 2019, I originally established until we are all free as a consulting group because there were so many people that was reaching out for, to me to tell my story, to do this, to say, hey, Kev, can I pick your brain? Tell me all the grandest things you know. Tell me the worst day of your life. Tell me how you made it here. All of these things. Right. So I established this as a consulting group where I wanted to set precedent for the, the, the directly impacted folks who are in movement for their contribution to be valued and respected, just like anyone else at the table, just like the judges, like the lawyers, like the county attorneys, like the case managers, like everyone. We're saying that y'all asking us these questions because this is a problem that we didn't create, that y'all don't know what to do. And they're saying that we can't do it without the contribution of these people's expertise. And what I wanted to say is, these people will also be compensated 
for their expertise and their intellectual property, which means that it will give folks a pathway back to community by saying, so my day job can be to serve in community. For folks in prison, it was revolutionary. They were able to wrap their brain around that and say, so there's a way that I can go home and, and embody restorative justice. There's a way that I can go home and embody that I understand that I need to take accountability from what I took from community. And actually, I can actually do that with my own merit. And I can actually do it with my own intellectual property and all the things that I know. All that, I can actually do that for a living. Um, so I established it as that because that was, was what was important. And then in 2020, I was out about eight months before you know the world changed and COVID happened. So when COVID happened, I was currently still director of criminal justice at Voices for Racial Justice. All of our pretty plans for the next three years, the stuff that we can hope to change in three years, you know, I had like a three-year map vision. I had it all mapped out. And then COVID happened. And then the phone calls, like the first weeks of COVID, you know how we were all scared. We didn't know what this meant. You get it, you die. So I started getting phone calls from folks, my brothers and sisters in prison saying, I'm afraid that I'm about to die. I don't know what's happening. So all of the needs that we thought that if we can change this thing in three years, it'll be granted all like merged to now. And then the needs in community, they arose. I forgot how many people I know, right? So if you do 14 and a half years in prison, I forgot how many people that I know and how many people that they were connected to. So it was just a day that I woke up and I had like over 90 something missed text messages from family and friends and people that I did time with. The thread went like this. Some people were saying, hey, I have these resources. Do you know where they can go? The next person was saying, hey, I need this thing, <laughs> right? So it, it organically just was like, I forgot how many people that I know. Um, and I wanted to, like, I left my role at Voices for Racial Justice to fully focus on until we are all free because the needs of the people, like my generation was saying, we need a place to call our own. We need a place to be able to fully bloom into ourselves. We need a landing spot and a launching pad. So I chose to found this organization and I want to continue to create space and capacity for those who are currently incarcerated, post-incarceration, to know that whatever your dreams are, whatever the light is, whatever the thing is that you do, that there is space for you in community for you to do it. And I founded this organization to be a walking, talking embodiment of that in a nutshell. So we've been around, we've officially been around since April of this year of 2021, officially filed our 501c3. We operated as an LLC for like 18 months. In April of 2021, we officially, you know, got our nonprofit status. And now we're currently building our internal organization, making sure that everything internally is in place and building the resources that we need to run our full program. And when you say we, who else is involved? Um, my colleague, um, Kaylee Griffey, who's actually also a justice impacted person, who's my co-executive director and our, com our communications director, Soraya. Soraya is a student that I met when I came home. I actually, someone that reached out to me when I came home, I helped her and some of her college buddies with some papers. They interned with me at Voices for Racial Justice for a while. She was a junior, a sophomore in college when I met her. I was able to support her through her college and see her graduate. And after she graduated for communications, it was like such an honor for until we all free to be able to give her her first job in movement. So I'm really proud of my team. We're taking a marathon route. We're going slow and building intentionally. Um, and we have maybe eight ambassadors in community. 
And our ambassadors are other justice impacted folks who work at other organizations as well. And they just ambassadors of until we are all free and they show up in certain spaces that I can't. Mm -hmm. um, would you mind naming who those are, those other organizations? Um, Antonio Williams, who works for Black Visions Collective right now, the People's Campaign, um, Noel Faye, who's currently working at Mitchell Hamlin Law Clinic, Alexander Kanadis, who's working at All Square. He's one of the fellows at All Square. Mayan Burrell, who act, who's founded Mayan Speaks, who's out here right now. Eli Darris, who's running for president one day. That's my brother. I love him. <laughs> <Eli. laughs> <laughs> That's my brother. I love him to death. Jamesia Donerson, who's someone who's currently in college. She's going working and going to college. She's someone who's just as impacted, was in prison since she was 16 years old. She's a 29-year-old Black woman right now. Uh, we're able to support them. And all of our ambassadors, we pay them. So we are able to set precedents and say, we pay you to embody whatever the thing is that you do. You just do it proudly, boldly, until we are all free. And they, for us to be able to compensate them. For, for just being themselves and saluting them and saying, you are a walking, talking solution. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. And our goal is to like continue to create space. We need more and more and more. I don't want to be the only one talking. Yeah, I hear that. So we have lots of work to do in terms of reforming our criminal justice system. And I know why I got involved in this. And it was through the murder of my cousin. You know, some of the reading that I was having and what probably 11, 12 years ago. And the more I read, the more I was just astounded by what was happening and what wasn't happening. And we're in a moment now. You mentioned the world changing and it changed in a very dramatic way here in Minnesota with the murder of George Floyd, all of the convergence of all the things. And now we have people that are listening or they're listening, they're, they're positioned to listen. There's some people that don't like to listen. They just like to act, right? They just got to find a solution right now. And we've got the gamut. But from your point of view, from your experience, from your expertise, where do you think the most opportunity is for reforming the system right now? We got to look at the system truthfully first. I think it must start with understanding that the actual criminal justice system itself is criminal. If America was put on trial by its own laws, it would get the death penalty, right? So I think that we need to like fully boldly look at the system for the hypocrisy that it is, right? The next thing that we need to do is say, if the system is not working, this thing is not working for some people, right? The solution can no longer be, how do we tinker? How do we reform? What we need to do is reimagine. Right. A lot of these systems is in place. I actually want to live in a society with laws. I don't want to live in a lawless society. I actually believe in living in society with laws and some type of collective understanding of humanity, how we live amongst each other. I don't want to live in chaos. But the current way in which we do it is not pro-humanity. So we need to reimagine a world that exists where we have all of the functions that we have now. Everyone wants safety. Everyone wants security. Everyone wants a chance to pursue their dreams and happiness. Right but we do not longer lead states, agencies of agents of the state who gets to come into our community and take our bodies. If the police come into community right now, the current way that the police is structured, if the police pull up on you right now, Shonda, and they say, hey, Shonda Baker, today's your day, you're under arrest. You don't get to say no, right? You, gotta, you can fight with a lawyer and tell it to the judge and you have your legal process, but right now in your home, 
The police can come and knock on your door and say you are under arrest and you have, and they're there, you're going either in handcuffs or a body bag if they have an arrest warrant for you. And we all need to think about that, how scary that is that we live in this society where we have these agents of the state with this much power over our bodies. So I think one of the things that needs to change is we need to be brave enough to say abolishing the system does not mean chaos. Abolishing the system does not mean that there's going to be anarchy. And I don't think if they think Black people is going to run over the hills and go to all their farms and take all their cows, I don't know what they think is going to happen. Abolishing the system actually gives space for us to create a real future. There are so many folks in community, white, black, brown, yellow, all different kinds of colors, who have these natural abilities, these natural abilities of humanity. And we need to create space for them to actually be able to do it as their natural self in an organic way without having to go through school or system in order for you to get accredited to say, now I'm certified to be a community member or now I'm certified to to contribute to the greater good. I don't think we need the system for human beings to function together. So uh, what I would say is abolishing the system does not have to be scary, right? It does not have to be something that we are afraid of. It actually can be very beneficial to us all. It will actually create a more safer society for us all. Mm -hmm. And for the folks who have, who see the system and the police as people that protect them. Like when I see the police, I don't think of, you know, protect and serve me, but you have other people in America who do see the police as that. They see the police as their first line of defense, right? Ask yourself, protect you from what? Protect you from who, right? In your head, you're like, you have this image of some crazed color person who's going to run in your house and take all of your stuff. And then ask yourself, how many times have you actually experienced that in your real life? And then you will be able to know, oh, this is actually prejudice. This is actually bias that I was taught that you learned somewhere, right? We don't see the police as protecting and serve us because we have all of this history, all of these examples of the times that they didn't. So we have a reason to not trust the system, right? On the other side of that, there is no one coming for y'all wealthy white people. That's not the plan of black people when we say abolish the system. I didn't go to the meeting. There's no active meeting that's saying when they abolish the system, we gonna get them all. We actually just want peace and harmony. And the system is actually a barrier to us right now to get there. So speaking as a fellow Northsider, not pray an abolitionist. I, pray for us. Just pray. For pray us. for us. Ooh. Pray for us right now. But as so, I'm not an abolitionist, right? I think I'm bold in how I think about things, and maybe my imagination isn't yet big enough to see it without the structure of policing, right? What I can imagine, however, is like you know, I have family members and that are in, you know, that are police officers. And I have others that I know that have respect for us, that that show up, that show up for the kids, that model, that, you know, engage community in the ways that I think we're aiming for. And in a moment where we're seeing the levels of violence, right? Because I don't, I agree with you, right? Like there is a, a there is a whole system that is organized, a belief system that there's going to be the scary black man that's going to come and get you, right? Like I, I know this, right? And 
I also live in a community where, you know, the FBI report just came out, 30% increase in violent crimes across the nation, right? I was driving home the other day and I was like, I prayed all the way. And I don't even go, it's tough. Yeah, I, I slide okay. real okay, light Okay, so I'm just saying right. like, if, if something happens to, to me, mine and others that live near me and, and beyond me, I wanna know that someone is gonna show up. Right. I want to know. Right. And there's a lot of things I want to know about that. Right. I want to know that they're going to show up and then not turn the gun at my sons. I want to know that they're going to show up and protect me and not assume that I'm the culprit. I want to know there's a lot of I want to knows in the scenario. And I think the uncertainty of how they might show up is where my angst is. But in some situations, I might take the gamble if I feel like my life is in danger. Right. So like. Speak to me because I ain't I'm not the abolitionist now. Like I I need someone to roll up with some sirens and, and be ready. No, for sure. I think um it's just we seen a perpetuating cycle. So it's a tragedy what's happening. Like really pray for North Minneapolis. My black body don't feel safe in North Minneapolis. This has been a horrible year for my black body. My anxiety has been as worse as it's ever been. I don't feel safe. Every day before I go out, I pray. I look like this. I be smiling. I'm happy and stuff. You know, it's like a real. I'm a same thing. I'm a brother. I'm an uncle. I'm a father. Can't nothing happen to me. You hear me? So it is a real thing that's happening in our community right now, where even my black body don't feel safe. But what's happening is this perpetuating cycle. So what's happening right now is similar to what happened in the '80s with the war on drugs and the rise of mass incarceration. The uptick in violence and what happened in our community, the actual community members didn't feel safe no more. So we didn't know who to turn to. So it was this huge push around. We got to lock them up. We got to get them off the streets. And this was like the rise of tough on crime, like rhetoric. And you had folks in community who was actually agreeing with it. Why? Because they live in, Uzi just shot through their house. You got three-year-olds getting killed. And these people's fears wasn't not coming out of nowhere. There were tragedies happening in community where their blocks and their communities actually turned to war zones and they didn't know where else to turn except say, we got to do something. We got to lock them up. But what happened was when we turned the power over to the system, they're going to always overdo it. So they're like, oh, you don't feel safe. Start building prisons. So they started building prisons, right? And then they started over-policing our community. Then they started killing our sons, killing our nephews, locking our brothers up, our fathers up for. And then once you get into the courtroom, you know, this thing that you did, you don't understand how many years they're saying, right? Until we start seeing the gulf of fathers and brothers and uncles being gone for a whole entire generation. And that's where we at right now in Minneapolis. So in 2020, the death of George Floyd, that was this global revolution that took place here on the ground. And one of the things that community was screaming, we need less police. We need less police. So the city of Minneapolis was like, hey, okay, so we got less police. But guess what happened? None of that trauma was, all of that unchecked trauma happened. Also in the city right now, George Floyd wasn't the, be, the beginning of anything. He was just a continuation of everything that was already going on. George Floyd, we just seen what happened to brother George Floyd on tape and it was egregious. But you and I know that the issues had already been here for decades, for generations now. So what happened in Minneapolis now is you have this whole entire generation of late teens, early 20s year old kids who don't know what to do. So they have literally waged war with each other 
in the streets of, in, of North Minneapolis, South Minneapolis, Minneapolis, period. And I would say what's going to happen, there's a generation of where we got up to like 70 something homicides this year in Minneapolis. There's like over 70 something homicides. This 75 year. or 76. No? Yeah. Those are all real people. Blessings. Let's pray over all of everyone who lost their life to violence and gun violence in Minneapolis this year. The, the children, it's been tragedies this year. Let's pray for all of those folks. And then you have the culprits who did it. Guess what? For the ones of those that got caught, they're going to jail. The system is going to send them to prison away for life, right? Why they did it won't be asked. Don't matter. Whatever trauma, whatever generational trauma they came from, wherever they came from, all of that trauma is unchecked. Right. So they're just going to go to prison with that trauma. Their families still got that trauma, their loved one doing this thing. So that energy is still vibrating in the city, even though they went to prison. The trauma was unchecked. And then on the other side of that, the feds is going to come and 2022 is going to be a year of sweeping indictments in Minneapolis for the rest of them. Right. So what's going to happen There's another generation that's going to be dead and in jail. But all of the trauma is still unchecked. Right. There was still no place to say, why? What is this? So they just went to jail with all their trauma. The family members who lost loved ones sitting with their trauma. My family lost one of my female cousins was killed this year. She was murdered and dropped in the alley this year in North Minneapolis. Guess what? I did time with the person who did it. So when this picture came out, I actually knew this man. I actually did time with him. A tragedy. Guess what? He's just going to prison. I knew bro was crazy. Pardon my French, but guess what? He's just going to get held accountable. He's going to prison and all of that trauma and whatever it took for him to do that is unchecked. So I think we need to create a space where both things can be true. That needs to be an answer to remove people away from people that's not having pro-community and pro-humanity thinking. I don't want to be in the middle of a gunfight. I don't want the person next door to me shooting through my house to shoot to the house, right? So folks that do such a thing, we do need to do something with them. But the thing we need to do is get to the root cause issue. And just sending them to prison is not the answer because we're just going to send them to prison with all of that unchecked trauma that the next generation is going to pick up and carry. Mm -hmm. as, as we wrap, and then, you know, I, I mentioned my cousin getting killed. He was also killed by someone I went to high school with. There's, there's something about holding all of that. I knew his family, right? I, I love his cousins. I respect his dad. This is what happened. I always felt like he was he was capable of this. And now it happened to me, right? Like the mix and range of emotions around this because you can actually grieve for everybody. And I think that that's what we don't always understand the level of grief and the complexity and the relational aspects of it that's happening in the community. But what I think is what, what's profound about what you just said is the vibration of trauma Right. And um, matter of fact, he, so my cousin was killed in 2011. In 2016, at his five year mark for me, I needed to I needed to rearrange my emotion and my heart around the situation. So I did a gun buyback in the city of Minneapolis and I started Art is My Weapon that <laughs> Nikki McComb now leads and um, that she owns it now. She moved on with it. And um, the idea was, is how do we take something tragic and, and be creative around spreading the message. And um, the idea really was seeded from some work that happened in New Orleans. And one of the artists in New Orleans had a piece, I think it was called The Plague. And it talked about every time someone is killed, I think it was that it affects 300 people. It affects 
all the kids and the families that that person went to school with, both the, the offender and the victim. It affects everyone that the parents work with, right? Everyone in the church community, everyone in the neighborhood. Like you don't think about how many people get touched by the trauma, right? It might, it might move from being really close and immediate, but it doesn't mean you're not thinking about it. It doesn't mean his classmates are looking at their own life and saying, what does this mean for me? You don't know how it's playing out. And so we have all these young babies in their formative years in this, this environment of toxic stress, of extreme poverty, of instability on top of what happened with George Floyd, on top of what happened across the country with people that look like them, um, people that are in their age group, people that they might know, people that they're connected to on social media. We have this, this plague of trauma that is there, Do, what, we're not doing enough? Are we not acknowledging it? Like, do you think that that's part of the solution to how we tackle a lot of things that are happening right now in community or? Yes, I think creating space for a, a place to check the trauma as, as kind of how, as we were saying, is so important because also, such a powerful thing that 300 people are impacted by is I can feel that, right? Can't you feel in the city? So if we said if it's over 75 homicides, just the impact, I can feel yeah. it. We live in the city. We I could feel that. Um, and there needs to be space for the why, because to just send them to prison without the trauma being checked, it's going to continue to vibrate. So we need to create a way in which we can hold them accountable and we can also stop the vibrations of trauma. Right, because if we don't, the next generation and other people is going to continue to pick them up. And I think the one of the ways in which we do that, the system has to give back some of its power. It has to give away, like community needs to be able to decide what is an actual sentence for someone sometime. Right. This was the crime that happened, and community actually need to be able to say, This is how it impacted us, and this is what accountability for this person looks like with a chance for the person to actually not give, when they say pay your dues or pay your debt, not to pay your debt back to the system, but to pay your debt back to community. Currently, I know we got to wrap up, but currently the way that the system is designed, I can't say sorry to my the person that lost his life, his family. It's against the law, right? I, I wake up every day, I wish I could like, in my real life, pay it forward back directly back to community. But the system said, no, that's against the law. So that's what happens when the system gets involved. They were actually- Say that again, say that again, Kevin. So you can't, you want to apologize to the family. Yes. And you're not allowed to because it's against the law. It's against the conditions of my parole. I will go straight to jail. If you make contact. If I make contact with them, straight to jail, right? Um, and I can get how they set that up, right? At some point, it sounded like, hey, I bet you it's a great idea. Of course, you want to keep victims safe from people, of course. But what about me? What about the folks who actually do believe in restorative justice and rehabilitation? There is no place for them. So I think that that's what happens when the system takes control. They take the humanity out of it. They don't see it as humanity. They see it as checks and boxes, right? Check. Um, so it leaves me in community with the whole every day. So only thing I can do is try to pay it forward and my merits and what I do, but I still have this whole.
because I haven't been able to say, I am sorry. It's against the law for me to say, I am sorry. So that's what happens with community. If you talk to some of the men who's in prison, who maybe did a horrible thing 10 years ago, if you talk to them now, right? A lot of them may say, I'm sorry, what did I do? Right, so what do we do with their grief now too? Right, there needs to be a place for their grief as well. And you can think, say, I'm sorry, right? Like you can say it on this podcast. What you can't do is say it to them in their face in the same room. That's what's against the law. Yes, that's what's against the law. So everywhere I go, I tell the story. It's my way of hopefully it can vibrate um, out in that way. I dedicated the rest of my life to this. Um, I think about them every, I think about them often, something real to me. Um, and I didn't know a way to say it. I just had to embody it. So everything that I do in community is rooted in understanding that I took something from community and I must pay it forward. It's why I dedicated the rest of my life to being a part of the solution, whatever the solution is. And I am sorry. I am sorry. Um, there is nothing else left to be said. I appreciate you, sir, and your time, your commitment, the value and the expertise that you bring to the community. I hope that um, it continues to grow that you continue to bring voice to the trauma and how that trauma moves in decision-making, that how people are more than their worst day, as Brian Stevenson says. And uh, I look forward to continuing to partner with you. Thank you for advising us on our work. Thank you. Thank you for having this sacred space to be able to come on here today. And all the things I said, but I feel a little bit of healing with having the space to say, I'm sorry. So thank you for that alone, for having a sacred space where I could do that. Perfect. And pray for Minneapolis, pray for us all. Can't say it enough, like please pray for us all. And that's Kevin Reese and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. To learn more about Kevin and his work, please visit his website, which is the first letters of Until We Are All Free. That is uwaaf.org. Kevin also has a poetry book called Luckily, Fish Don't Need Raincoats. To find where you can purchase this book, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. And if you enjoy our podcast and are looking for ways to become a sponsor, please contact me. You can find my information on our website under the About section and click Our People. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, Jan Coco, Darlin Benjamin, and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. This is Sue Pop Keenitz. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.